0: We're going to be studying through the the second section, second major section in the book of Genesis. Genesis divides pretty cleanly between the first 11 chapters and then chapters 12 through 50. So our goal this spring is to kind of just walk through this, and the themes that we're going to see over and over again as we do this is just how good God is and how faithful he is to keep his promises in light of just how dumb we are, okay? Let's be honest, all right? We are flawed people, and as we look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of these ones that we'll see, you're going to be struck over and over again by just how flawed they were and yet just how good God is. So to dive in with that this morning, we're going to try to lay some foundation and give you just a real quick overview of some of the things in this first section that, that show us the faithfulness of God and in light of us as flawed people. Now I can't even get my Bible to stay open. Man, it is that kind of day. Can we pray again? Well, Father, you know that I am distracted. You know that things aren't working like I want them to? but I thank you that you are the good God who is always in charge. So right now, we ask that you would put any of these distractions to rest, that we'd be able to hear clearly from your word. Thank you for being faithful in spite of our flaws. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we are diving in to the story of a guy named Abram or Abraham. Now, if you were with us last week, you say, well, didn't we just talk about that guy? Yes, Noah actually gave us a a brief overview, kind of a a biographical sketch of some of the key moments there in Abram's life. Now, if if you hear me go both ways by that, uh, he started off as Abram and God later changed his name to Abraham. And we'll talk about when that happens and why and what God was doing through that. But so as Noah talked last week, Noah was focusing on the fact that throughout all that Abram went through, he was faithful even when he was frustrated with what God was doing. What I want us to do this morning is as we start slowing down and spend these next several months looking at Abram and several others, my prayer and my hope through this is that you guys really will get a good picture of the faithfulness of God in the middle of it all, okay? Does that sound like a good plan? I hope so because it's what we're doing either way, so you know. I say that like you've got a choice in the matter. Well, to back up, to set the stage a little bit, let's kind of get a running start into Abram's life. So that's why we're backing up to Genesis chapter 11. Now, here's what's taken place since the beginning of the book, and that is, everything in human history up to this point. So that's all you got to summarize, everything that's happened. Genesis begins with the creation account of how God created the world. He literally spoke it into being. Then by chapter three, you see that we've rejected what God told us to do and turned to doing our own thing and decided we wanted to be in charge. That theme comes up over and over again. By chapter six, people have gotten to the point where they have so chosen to reject God that God says, you know what? Let's start over. And so he floods the entire earth, preserves Noah and Noah's family, and then starts back over. Things go okay-ish for a moment, but then by the, before too much longer, you end up with what's known as the Tower of Babel, where everybody's speaking one language, and they sit there and say, hey, I think it'd be a great idea for us just to go ahead and build a tower that reaches all the way to heaven. Does that sound good to you? So they decide they're gonna do it on their own. God puts the end to that, scatters them by changing their languages, and this is where the nations begin to divide. So by chapter 11, you've got one of those sections that everybody skips over when they're doing their Bible through a year plan, and that is uh, the begats, right? The genealogy section where it says, these are the generations of this person, this person had this person, they were this old, this person had this person, this person, this person. But it's kind of important for us to go back and look at a little bit of this, um, because as we pick this up, you'll notice that throughout the book of Genesis, one thing for you to look for as you read it on your own is that statement of, these are the generations of. And when you see that phrase, you see it there in verse 27 right here. These are the family records, or other translations say the generations of Terah, okay? Usually in the book of Genesis, that's a phrase that often introduces a new section. So it's kind of a a shift in focus as, as Moses is writing this down. Keep in mind, by the way, the first five books of the Old Testament, which Genesis is the first one, was written by Moses, the guy that led the Israelites out of Egypt. And part of what he's doing through this is helping the people to see their history, where they came from, and how God has already worked, so that as they're coming out of Egypt and getting ready to go into the promised land, he's connecting what God has already done in Abram and his family to where the Israelites are as they're going into the promised land. In fact, uh, you can make some really interesting parallels between what God does through Abram and what God does through his people later, bringing them out of Egypt. We'll see a little bit of that this morning. Okay? So that's kind of the situation of the context. So picking up in verse 27 of chapter 11, these are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Now, who paid attention in early Civ, like your ancient civilization class? Ur ought to sound somewhat familiar, like the Fertile Crescent and all these kind of things. You know, evolutionary theory is the idea that that's where society got started. That's kind of where things became modernized, and and we start thinking about like the first writing and things like that. And while a lot of that is true, that's because this is basically where everybody settled when they got off of the ark after the flood. Uh, when Noah and his family settled, they all basically settled in this Fertile Crescent region, and so that's where you have a lot of things take place, including the Tower of Babel. So that's where Abram and his family are. As they're there in that, that area of Mesopotamia, you see there's a few important things for us to notice, right? So first, that Abraham and his family were from Ur, which is near where God had confused the languages of Abraham, the Tower of Babel. Man, this is, is it driving you as crazy as it's driving me? This is driving me nuts. Okay, well, it keeps cutting out up here. Battery seems to be okay. We've got more wireless stuff than we've had, so I'm wondering if we're getting some interference anywhere. I'm going to try to ignore it. We'll keep going. Okay, cool. So as we're looking at it, though, interesting thing about about Abram, he's there in Ur. They moved to a place called Haran. Some have put this kind of a little bit farther north than Canaan. But here's what's interesting. In that region, they didn't follow the one true God. In fact, when God speaks to Abram, we have no indication that of the one true God. In fact, we know that they weren't. That's where God uh, spoke through Joshua. In Joshua chapter 24, he says this, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods, okay? But I took your father Abraham from the region beyond the Euphrates River, led him throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. And then he goes on as he continues to talk about what he's done. So here's what's so amazing from the very get-go as we look at the faithfulness of God to make the promises that he's making. He's making them to a guy that, as far as we know, didn't actually follow him. See, it wasn't that God looked at Abraham and said, this guy, this guy's godly. This guy's got it locked down. Like when you look at the story of Noah, when God selected Noah, Noah was the only righteous one who was still following the Lord when all of the rest of the world had gone wicked. So God said, I'm gonna spare you because of you've honored me. There's no indication with that with Abram. God chose Abram because God chose Abram. In the goodness of God, in his grace and in his mercy, he simply chose him. When God called Abram and made him these promises, there's nothing that indicates he was a devout follower of the one true God. There was no reason for God to do that other than the fact that God just did it. Isn't it wonderful to think that our God is so powerful, so merciful that he loves us because he loves us. You know, you think about your own kids, right? The way that I love my kids, I don't love my kids because they do great in school or because they're cute or because they're fun or because they're this, that, or the other. I love my kids because they're my kids. When God chose Abram, he chose Abram because he chose Abram. God loves us because he loves us. It's a beautiful truth. So as we dive in, what we're going to see is God making a unique promise to Abram. This morning, we just see the beginnings of that promise, just the the first hints of what's to come. Now, it's a doozy. We're going to talk a lot more about it when we get to chapter 15, where God fleshes out a lot more about the promise. But what I want to do is I want to kind of juxtapose two things for us today. First, we're going to look at what God says and how God's showing his faithfulness. Then we're going to go to see how Abram responds. Okay, And just through this, we're going to see the faithfulness of God even through flawed people. And so my encouragement to you, my challenge to you today would be that as you hear this, that you lean on the God who is faithful in spite of your own flaws and failures. Okay, So let's dive in. Start here in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Verse four, so Abraham, Abram went. Now we'll pick up a little bit more in just a minute. There's a couple other key factors to know about Abram, by the way. It says later on in this passage that he is 75 years old. 75 years old. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're 75 or older. But he was not a young man. The other factor that we we missed kind of as we were reading through about the genealogy section is the scriptures told us that his wife, Sarai, who's not a whole lot younger than him, has never had a kid. They're childless. At 75 and I can't remember how old Sarah was at the time off the top of my head, but older than enough to have kids. They were childless in a godless place, and yet God chose them to make them a great nation. Now, as we see through this, let's look at it in a couple of different ways. First, we're gonna see God sent. God sent Abram, okay? Here is this absolutely incredible command that the Lord issues to Abram He tells him to pack up, to leave his relatives and go wherever God tells him to go. How many of you would like to have that conversation with your wife when you get home? Hey, babe, guess what? So this God that we don't really even follow spoke to me today. And he said, we're supposed to leave everything and everyone we know and move. Where are we moving? I'm actually not sure. He didn't tell me that part. He just said, pack up and move, and we'll figure it out when we get there. How many of you would be thrilled by that? Now, there's a few of you who are gypsy souls who are like, I'm on it, let's do it. It sure is out there, you know, like you're you're ready. But the vast majority of us would want more details than this. This God we barely know is telling me to, to move somewhere I don't even know where I'm going. And by the way, how many of you, by the way, how many of you are not from Southwest Virginia? Okay, you're not originally from here. Now, we've got a decent amount of locals in the room, but we've also got a decent amount of transplants. It's not that big a deal in our society to pack up and move. That's just part of life in our modern society. We're very mobile. It wasn't that way in those days. You were born on the same piece of property that you would die on. Your dad was a farmer. You were a farmer. That's just what you did, right? So even if you did relocate, you relocated with family. And now God's saying, take your wife and your nephew and go. So this is even more difficult than it would be for us. He so, said, well, they were semi-nomadic. They lived in tents. They could just do that. Well, yeah, whatever. It's a different, totally different thing. Can you imagine? Just, hey, just pack up and go. But God sent Abraham to go. Now, there's some aspects, like I said, that would be even more challenging for us. But at 75 years old, God is calling Abram to move away from his family to somewhere he doesn't even know where he's going. Abraham doesn't know God well at this point, but many of you do. Right? As I look out across this room, many of you have had a, a vibrant relationship with the Lord for a lot of years. What if God did something like that in your heart today? How would you respond? Now, how willing are you to do what God calls you to do, even if it makes your family look like you're crazy, right? How willing are you? Right off the bat with this section, you and I are faced with the reality that following God sometimes requires radical obedience. And you and I are challenged by the fact that sometimes that's gonna require us to do something crazy. And so the question is, is God faithful enough to trust him when he sends us to do something that seems crazy? We'll see in a moment how Abraham responds, but I want you to think for a moment about how you would respond. You know God. Think about all that you've seen God do over the years. Think about all the ways that he's blessed you and and the ways that you've learned from his word and the ways that you've seen him better when you obey him. All of those things, if God called you to step outside of your comfort zone and do something different, would you be ready to do it? Or would you say, well, yeah, but... So we're confronted with the reality of, do we actually believe that God is faithful? So God sent Abram to go. To go where? He didn't know. But not only do we see that God sent, God coupled that sending with a promise. God promised. Look back again at verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, there's no way on earth that Abram could have comprehended what God was doing here. However, what we see in this promise is the beginning of a promise that changes the world forever. Now, in 2023, we play fast and loose with the English language, and sometimes we use hyperbole to overstate things. This is not hyperbole. The promise that God made to Abram changed all of human history. In this moment, it's absolutely brilliant to watch. As God's calling Abram to step out into the unknown with him, he's coupling it with this promise to make him into a great nation and that through that great nation, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. We'll talk more as we go through about how God was going to fulfill this promise, but to an old childless man and his old barren wife, God promises that he's going to make them a great nation. After Abram gets in the land, God fleshes his promise out a little bit more in verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So now he's going to tell him that as old as he is, he's going to have a kid. By the way, I want to be aware and sensitive. In those days, unfortunately, there was great shame with not having kids. It was assumed that whatever God you follow was punishing you by not blessing you with a child. So Abraham and Sarai were were always struggling with that weight and that guilt. We recognize today that in the sovereignty of God, there are times where he chooses to give children and times he chooses to withhold. That's not necessarily an indication of anyone's obedience or disobedience. That's simply how God works in his sovereignty and his grace. We don't understand it. We don't know why. But in those days for them, this was a tremendous, tremendous shame. Yet, in some way, God says, I'm going to redeem that because I'm going to give you offspring. Even though you're old, and like Noah quoted out of Hebrews 11, as good as dead. I love that phrase. (laughs) I love that he hit that. That's great. Even though they were old and as good as dead, God was going to fulfill his promise. There aren't any details in this section about how or when, but God's promising to do the impossible and bless the world through Abram's family. Now, Here's what's really interesting about this promise. Usually when you make a covenant with somebody, you can think about it in terms of like, let's say the closest we get it would be like marriage vows, right? When my wife and I got married, we stood up in front of God and our, our pastor and the church and our friends and family and said, I'm making a promise that this is the woman that I will love and that I will cherish and that I will seek to honor for the rest of my life. And she made the same promise to me. Because there's kind of this if then, right? There, there's In some covenants, in some contracts, there's a, if this happens, then I'll do this. Do you see the word if anywhere here? You know, that struck me because we usually assume that there's this if kind of implied of if you leave and go to Canaan, then I will make a great nation out of you. But God doesn't put an if here. There are other conditions that God makes with Israel that, where he does give the blessing and cursings and if this, then that. But in this instance, he's just making a promise. He's just saying, this is how it's going to be. You go to Canaan, you go where I tell you, and I'm going to do this. I will keep my word. We'll see this crystal clear when we get to chapter 15. But God's promise to bless the world through Abram's descendants is something he's going to accomplish despite the flaws and the failures of his people. That's why the study is going to focus us on the faithfulness of God. See, much later, one of Abraham's distant descendants, the apostle Paul, would write, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God made a promise to Abram that day. I will bless you. I will make you a blessing to the nations. And God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Now, here's where we so often go astray. We hear Abraham was going to obey God, and God promised to bless him by making him a great nation. So that means if I obey God, then that means God's gonna make everything go the way that I want it to go. In fact, unfortunately, there are some pastors who would preach this this way. See, that's not the promise that God's making here. God's making a unique promise to a unique individual at a unique time in history. However, here's the beauty of this promise. Don't cheapen that promise by saying, if I obey God, he's gonna let me have a really nice house or a really good relationship, or a really good job. Don't cheapen this, because here's what God was promising to Abram. When God said, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you, what he was saying was, the one who is going to come to be the savior of the world would be a descendant of Abram. In other words, one of Abram's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren would be Jesus. That when God took on flesh, the flesh that he took on was in a descendant of Abraham. As he was conceived in Mary's womb, Mary was a descendant of this man. And so Jesus, as he incarnated himself, he took on Abraham's line. He lived and he died on the cross and rose from the dead to offer us life. So now all the nations of the world are blessed through the fact that one of Abraham's descendants took all of our sin upon himself. So don't at this to say a nice house. Guys, listen, how many of you have lived in a house long enough that you've remodeled it at least twice? right? You, you, you remodeled it 20 years ago, and now you got to gut the kitchen again because it doesn't look like JoJo's got her kitchen down in, you know, Magnolia table stuff, right? You know, one of the reasons that we're going through the decor is because decor gets dated, and so we're, we're looking to update some of the decor at the church. There's nothing wrong with that, but guys, if that's your vision of success, That house, that car, it's going to rust, it's going to leak, it's going to fall apart. This relationship, listen, every human relationship is going to disappoint you. That's life. We're all flawed people. So instead, look at this as the promise that it is. The promise is that through this guy, this childless, idol-worshiping 75-year-old and his barren wife, God is going to bring a child thousands of years later who's going to transform history by dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and now rules and reigns over all of creation. That's the promise that we claim out of this. Not that if I obey God, he's going to bless me somehow. No, the promise is that because God was gracious to keep his promise... Even though I've disobeyed God, I can be saved by Abraham's son, Jesus. It's a beautiful promise that's so rich. and I can't wait because we're going to get to come back to this over and over and over again throughout this study because this promise keeps coming back up. When we get to Genesis 15, it's one of the most beautiful chapters in Scripture, even though it's one of the weirdest pictures. But when you understand what you're looking at as best we can, seeing God make this promise in its fullness is unbelievable because God is faithful to keep his word. So now let's look at Abram for a minute. We have the faithfulness of God. Now let's look at the flawed person. He starts off really well, right? First, we see Abram's response. Initially, God makes this promise. He says, go. What's Abram do? Verse four, Abram went, right? Simple, straightforward, plain vanilla. I love how scripture is so understated sometimes. It doesn't tell us about the conversation he had with Sarai, where he's like, hey, we're moving. It doesn't tell us about how that went down. It doesn't tell us how much transpired. All we know is that God said it, he did it, period. That's what he did. As we're looking through this, guys, in simple, direct language, he, he got Sarai, his nephew Lot, and they just went. He went wherever God led and stopped when he got there. So kind of looping back, when we were saying, you know, do we trust that God's faithful enough for us to be radically obedient? Are you willing to go? Are you willing to go when God says go? We've said it around here about putting your yes on the table and letting God put it on the map. What's that mean? Saying, God, whatever you say, whatever you call, whatever you ask, the answer is yes. I'll go, I'll go do, I'll go say, I'll go. Now, immediately, when you hear that context preached, most often you think missions. You know, God's calling me to go to the end of the world. And maybe he is. One of my prayers is that God will raise up a family out of this church to go serve him full-time internationally. That's one of the things that I just keep asking God for. Because there's a lost world out there that's dying and needs to know who Jesus is. And you've had the privilege of sitting in here, hearing about God's word. You've been surrounded by people who love you. You've been in Bible studies through Sunday schools, small groups, things like that. It may be that God's been investing in you so that you can go. Maybe God's calling you, though. Maybe he is calling you overseas. If you are interested in what that conversation looks like, I'd love to talk with you about it. If you're afraid that, like, you know, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention is who we partnered with most often to do international missions, if you're worried that, like, if you tell me today that you feel like God's calling you to missions, you're going to have a plane ticket tomorrow, um, I couldn't assure you. It's, it is such a different process than that. There is a long involved process of making sure that God's in this. There's a process of training and equipping. It'll be a couple of years before you end up on the field typically. So take the first step when God leads. But for a lot of us, it may not be going somewhere. It may be going across the street. It may be going to Kelly and saying, hey, I don't really like being around people, but I'd be happy to cook some chili. I know I'm busy and I know I got, you know, eggs are solid gold right now. Um, but, but if I can make some cornbread. For some of you, that's a big step because you've never really invested beyond just coming on a Sunday morning. For others of you, it's coming next, next Sunday to lunch because you volunteered at Christmas and said, man, that's, that's it. Like getting in the community, And that's where my heart is. I'm scared to death, but maybe you come next week and you say, you know, Teresa, I want to help us with some kind of community outreach. This is what God's laid on my heart. I'm nervous about it, but that's what God's called me to do. Right? Maybe it's going across the street, going to that coworker. Maybe it's stopping going somewhere. God's convicted you that something you're doing is sinful and you need to put it down and walk away. Is God faithful enough to warrant our obedience? The answer to that ought to be yes. But see, Abram went. He just flat out went. What did he do when he got there, by the way? Not only did he go, he also worshiped. Abram worshiped. It says there in verse 5 that when they had come to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land of Canaan. Uh, to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, he he built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. As Abram goes, he stops and worships as he sees God. He built altars as symbols of where he had heard from and met with God. If we looked at them, they probably wouldn't be much. They were basically just piles of rocks to our eyes. But they were markers for him of what God had said and where. These encounters led God to, or with God led Abram to worship him, to call on his name. Now, we've defined worship around here as reflecting on who God is, reflecting on who we are, and responding in repentance and obedience when we see the difference. That's what Abram's doing here. He's reflecting on the God who's proving himself faithful. He's the the God he sees, the God he knows, the God who's been speaking to him, and he's responding in humility and obedience as he worships. How are you doing at that? In the hustle and bustle of life, are you taking time to notice when God's at work? Are you remembering and writing down and worshiping in those ways? Remember, we've defined worship as seeing him as we are, or seeing ourselves, or excuse me, seeing God as he is, seeing ourselves as we are, responding in obedience. Are you doing it? Now, so far, Abram's crushing it, right? So far, he's done great. He went, he worshiped, everything's fantastic. But here's what I love about this story. You know what happened to Abram next? He failed. He failed miserably. Let's take just a minute and look at it. Read verses 10 through 14 with me. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. They'll kill me, but they'll let you live. So please say that you're my sister, so it'll go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, "'What what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So then I took her as my wife.'" Now here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they'd send him away with his wife and all he had. Now there's question about whether or not Abram actually sinned by going to Egypt in the first place. Some people said God told him to go to Canaan. He got scared about the famine. He should never have left. The Bible's not really explicit about that. What the Bible is very clear about is that he was a miserable failure when he got there. Okay. Here's what's interesting. Abram, when he gets there, says, hey, look, you're gorgeous, which I love. It's so funny because I read this and you're like, man, she's like old and all, and all this kind of stuff. But she must have really been that beautiful because Pharaoh wanted to marry her. Like not just some schmuck off the street, like Pharaoh wanted to marry her. So he comes up with this lie. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about Abram's lie. Things were different back then before you go you, okay? Things were different back then. Sarai actually is Abram's half-sister. So he's not telling a full lie, right? I mean, she is my sister, but she's my wife. Left that part out pretty importantly. Some have said that probably what he was hoping to do was as the brother, he would have had rights to be able to negotiate the bride price and stuff like that. So he could have finagled it to where she would have been so exorbitantly expensive that nobody would actually be willing to marry her. The only problem was Pharaoh was the one that liked her right? Like if it was just some Egyptian guy, it's like, ah, yeah, we can deal with this. So his plan completely backfires on him. Pharaoh marries Sarah. So by by the way, wives, how would you feel about this, right? Your husband is not willing to stand up for you. So he lets you get pawned off with some other guy. This is the guy through whom the Messiah is going to come. This guy who at the first sign of trouble weasels his way out of this, Here's what's interesting. Who gets afflicted in this deal? Not Abram. He's the one that lied. God afflicts Pharaoh and his household with plagues, which by the way, I'm sure Moses included this as a reminder because they had just seen God do that. Again, a different Pharaoh, whole different set of plagues, but shown that God could do it. So God afflicts Pharaoh with plagues. Pharaoh's like, what on earth did you do to me, man? Why didn't you tell me that was your wife? And he sends them away. So in that moment, here's what you see. You see Abraham failing miserably and God still being faithful to keep his promise. Isn't that beautiful? Like, does that not encourage your heart that the God of the universe is so good that even if you completely botch whatever you're supposed to be doing, he still can work, he still can, can save, he doesn't lose his promises because of that? Isn't that incredible to rest in? Now, here's the thing, though. In this, yes, God continued to work. No question. Jesus still came through his line. But there are consequences. One of the consequences is their son is going to pull the same trick later on, lying and saying that his wife is his sister. This time, it's a total lie. She was a distant cousin. So that's not even a half-truth. But he he learned it from the family stories about his dad but there's another one that's a lot more subtle. Go back to verse 16. Sounds like God's blessing him while he's there, right? Pharaoh treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. What? This is great. Not only did I lie, God's blessing me because of it. Sounds like it's fantastic. It was several years ago that I, I made this connection. And I think it was probably a teacher at school, one of my professors that I sat under who made it for me because I'm not smart enough to figure this out on my own. Keep your finger there in Genesis chapter 12 and turn your page over just a little bit to chapter 16. Some of you know this part of the story. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him. Verse 1 but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, some of you know what happens here. Abram and Sarai get ahead of God, and he fathers a child through an Egyptian slave. When do you think he picked up an Egyptian slave? Several years before, when he was in Egypt, and Pharaoh gave him male and female slaves. The seeds of Abram and Sarai's disobedience in chapter 16 and fathering a child through Hagar are sown all the way back here in chapter 12 What looks like it could be a blessing ends up being the very thing that ensnares him and as we'll see as we get to that story, the father that he child or the, the fa- excuse me the child that he fathers with Hagar is fighting with the son of the promise to this day. To this day. Now, the faithfulness of God was so great that nothing could stop God from keeping his promise. But that does not mean that Abram's failures were not without consequence. That's why as we look at Abram and we take incredible lessons from the model that he is for us of going, of worshiping, we also have to recognize we need somebody better than Abram to save us. Abram was a flawed man. Yet, as we've already said, one of Abram's great, 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 grandchildren would be born without sin perfectly obey, even when that obedience took him to the cross, where he would die in our place to pay for our sin and to be raised from the grave to give us new life. As we look at these men and women throughout these stories, we're going to see that they are very flawed people, but even their flaws and their failures do not stop the faithfulness of God. Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes this morning? I know that there's been a lot of information in this message. It's been kind of scattered in some respects and there's been a lot to take in. But is there something through this that God has done in speaking to you? Is there something about this? Maybe for you, there's a step of obedience that you've been feeling like God calling you to make and, you need to put your yes on the table and say, God, I'll go. Perhaps for you, though, you don't know what it would be yet. You feel like as best you know, you're walking in obedience to everything God's told you from his word. Obviously, none of us are perfect, but but there's no major decisions. There's no major uh, sin issues that you've not confessed and gotten right. Today is the best time to put your yes on the table. To say, God, whatever you call me to do, wherever you call me to go, the answer is already yes. So that way, if God does call you to step out in some kind of a radical way and radical obedience, you're already ready. The decision is already made. Maybe you've gotten off track. We believe the Bible is very clear that once a person is genuinely drawn into a relationship with God and saved, they cannot lose that salvation. But like Abram, maybe you've messed up. you failed. Today, what I would encourage you to do is, again, throw yourself on the faithfulness of God. Say, God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know I've gotten off track. So I thank you that you are faithful to forgive. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that's a promise you can take to the bank and lean into. God forgives. So would you ask him to do that this morning? And if you're here this morning and you've never started that relationship with God, you've never been saved, you've never been drawn into that relationship, would you today respond by saying, God, I've heard that you're this awesome God. That, that I can talk to, that saves people, that loves us, that, that died for us. And I want to follow you. I want to do what you've called me to do. I want to be who you've called me to be. So, God, today I'm choosing to make you my Lord. That's my leader, my boss, my guide, the one that, that I, is in charge of everything about who I am and everything that I have. What do you need to do in response? I'll give you just a moment there where you're seated. If you want to talk with me, I'm down front and would be happy to, to talk with you more. If not, you just do business with God. Make that commitment to go. Make that commitment to worship. Rest in his promise. Father, thank you that you, you didn't sugarcoat any of the stories you gave us in your word. That Abram, this man who three major world religions trace themselves back to, Instead of giving us this pristine picture of him, you showed that he was a guy like us. Thank you for his example where he did worship, where he was responsive to you and went where you called him to go. Thank you for the reminder that you're a good God in spite of our failures. God, we confess we don't want to fail. We don't want to bring dishonor on your name. We don't want to hurt those around us. So God, today we ask that you would help us to rest in your promises. If there's somebody who's here in person or watching us online who's never made that decision to follow Jesus and trust him as their Savior and Lord, would you help them to do that today to see that the promise of eternal life, of knowing you, of being with you forever, God, would you draw that that person to yourself and help them to trust that promise? For those that you are calling to make a step of obedience in some unique way, would you help them to see your faithfulness? Help them to go. Help them to respond. I thank you even for those this morning I've talked to who have sensed you leading them to step up and do different things in obedience to you that that they hadn't done before. And who are seeing the benefit of knowing you differently through the way that they're serving you. God, would you let that be all of our experience this year? Would we all know you better this year because we've walked with you, we've obeyed you, we've seen you at work, we've joined you there, we've responded to your call and we've seen you do what only you can. Thank you for the promise you made to Abram. Thank you that you've blessed us through Jesus, his great, 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 great grandson. Help us to honor you this week as the faithful God you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.